Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Institute for Government. Uh, my name is Hannah White. I'm Deputy Director here. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome Andrea Leadsom, um, who uh, you needs no introduction, of course, but has been the MP for South North Northamptonshire North <laughs> since yes. 2010. Um, she's held a number of min ministerial uh, positions, including Secretary of State for DEFRA, and of course, most recently, as leader of the House of Commons between June 2017 and May 2019. And she's going to talk tonight about her experience, primarily, I think, in that role, um, her reflections on her time as leader, um, and her thoughts about, about the future of, of Parliament and, and indeed the wider situation of the country, I believe. So yes. we will just um, hear, hear Andrea's thoughts and then I'll ask her some questions um, and then I'll open up to questions from the floor. Great. Andrea. Well, thanks, Hannah. It's a pleasure to be back at the Institute for Government. And now I'm on the back benches, I can perhaps be a little bit frank about the last two quite amazing years. But first, I do want to give a quick assessment of where I think we are right now. We are stuck in an impasse, and there's no doubt that for the good of our parliament and our government and our country, we have to resolve it as soon as possible. In 2016, I think you'll all know this, the biggest ever democratic exercise took an unequivocal majority decision to leave the EU. And three years on, we simply have to get on with it. The 31st of October, in my view, needs to be a hard red line. And of course, I totally respect Parliament's right to amend and to scrutinise, but not to overturn the will of the majority. And I don't say that simply because it's what I campaigned for, voted for, and what I believe in, but I also say it because it's in the interests of our democracy. If voters see that the result of the referendum that they were told would be respected is in fact delayed, frustrated, or ultimately even ignored, then what else do we have? Why would anyone trust us ever again? So I hope the next government will show the determination and resolve to leave the EU by the end of October, preferably with a deal, but if not, then with the many bilateral arrangements already agreed with the EU27, and with the benefit of hundreds of statutory instruments that we enacted prior to 29th of March. Not a withdrawal agreement, no, but also in truth, not no deal either. And there isn't an effective way for Parliament to prevent the UK leaving the EU on the 31st of October, despite what you see in the press, despite what some MPs say, and even despite what the Speaker of the Commons says. So I'm happy to be challenged on that point during the Q&A session. And as I'm sure many here will know, I passionately believe there's a bright future ahead for us once we've left the European Union, and I want us to take full advantage of it. Now, I do really want to focus my remarks here this evening on my role as leader of the Commons, a truly superb role, which it was an honour to carry out. I would say it's one of the least understood jobs in government, but events over the last two years and the issues that the government has had to deal with has meant that it has been right in the engine room, dealing with the challenge of a hung parliament, countless business motions to deliver urgent measures, a wide range of complex primary and secondary legislation. And then, in addition to the day job, there's been a variety of other issues that cross the leader's desk, including the issues of proxy voting, the restoration and renewal of the Palace of Westminster, and, of course, bullying and harassment in Parliament, all of which I want to touch on this evening. But first, let me say a few words about the day job, because in recent times, the leader, along with the other business managers, the Leader of the Lords and the Chief Whips in the Commons and the Lords have arguably never been in more critical roles. My job was to ensure that the legislation the government was bringing forward was match fit to be introduced in either house. The Parliamentary Business and Legislation Committee, PBL for short, which the Leader chairs, is the forum in which this happens. I call it the Parliamentary Dragon's Den where quaking ministers bring forward their plans for bills and statutory instruments to be raked over by the committee, made up of law officers, whips, ministers from the territorial offices, and the leaders of both houses. And I think it's fair to say that the PBL in this session 
has been viewed by many ministers as pretty formidable. The lack of a government majority in either the Commons or the Lords has created a rare and incredibly challenging issue for the government, meaning that the scrutiny of legislation has needed to be much tougher than in parliaments where the government has enjoyed a majority. And in spite of the challenging arithmetic, there has been some amazing success, not just with primary legislation, where 45 bills have received royal assent in this session so far, but also with the huge raft of secondary legislation. At one time in the past, secondary legislation was really the Wild West. It was no one's priority, and therefore its quality was very variable. It was common for statutory instruments to be laid and then withdrawn multiple times because of drafting errors, inaccuracies, or because they ended up ineffective. So the increase in the amount of legislation needed for preparation to leave the EU with or without a deal meant that this could no longer be tolerated. So during my time as leader, we brought in a new centralized system for dealing with SIs, with intensive training for SI teams right across Whitehall, and a new focus on the quality and timeliness of impact assessments. The success of this new system cannot be understated, and great credit should go to the superb civil service teams who ensured that all of the necessary SIs needed for the 29th of March were on the statute book on time. On the day we were due to leave the EU, I had a thank you party in my office for all those excellent and hard-working civil servants. They had delivered on time. It was the politicians who had failed. But in addition to the normal job of leader, there have been a number of urgent issues that also crossed my desk, and I'm proud to say we pretty much nailed each one. Firstly, proxy voting. Now, change in Parliament isn't easy to come by. And I have to say, I myself don't believe in change for the sake of it. And quite often, there are very legitimate reasons why, in Parliament, things are done in a certain way. And that's how we like it. But there is also huge inertia, which has left many parliamentary procedures trapped in the 19th century, a long way short of the standards and expectations of the 21st century. In my view, there is now in Parliament a growing desire for modernisation. And I think a small but significant step was taken earlier this year by allowing MPs to proxy vote for the first time for baby leave. Until now, it was always the case that for your vote to be registered, you had to be present on the parliamentary estate. We've all heard and seen the stories over the years of MPs wheeled into the chamber in a wheelchair, hooked up to a drip, or parked in an ambulance in New Palace Yard in order that their vote might count in support of an often ailing government. We associate these stories with a time gone by, but in the last year or so, disturbingly similar incidents have taken place, which to the outside world makes our parliament look not only remote and out of touch, but quite frankly, pathetic. A government with a healthy majority can make liberal use of slips allowing MPs to be away from Parliament for a variety of reasons, anything from a child's nativity play or a ministerial visit through to serious illness or bereavement, safe in the knowledge that it still has the numbers to secure the government's business in Parliament. And it's not just the government that needs to allow its MPs time away from Parliament. The opposition often find themselves in the same position. And so it's often to both sides' advantage to pair MPs. The pairing system usually works well, and the usual channels do try to effectively administer it, but it is a system based on an informal agreement between whips, and therefore there are no guarantees, and of course there can be mistakes with serious consequences in a close vote, as we've seen a number of times in recent weeks and months. So I was delighted that in January this year, after several debates, a report from the Procedure Committee, and detailed negotiations behind the scenes, a year-long pilot was introduced for MPs on baby leave. And it's extraordinary how many people have used it since. It's almost as if they waited to get pregnant until it was in place, and here we are. The early signs are very good, and I've had feedback from colleagues who say it has really made a difference and has removed a huge amount of stress when considering how to be a new parent at the same time as being an effective MP. 
has made a big contribution to the morale of female MPs and, interestingly, to the enthusiasm of younger women for a career in politics. But this is only a small first step. There have been many who've asked whether the scheme should be extended to those with serious illness or who've been recently bereaved. Well, I would welcome the system expanding to incorporating these as well, and I look forward to the Procedure Committee taking further consideration of that later this year. <coughs> so the second big issue, which was on my desk as leader, had also been on the desks of at least the last 20 leaders of the Commons, and that is the restoration and renewal of the Palace of Westminster. There have been many reports into this issue, the most recent being the 2015 Joint Committee report, but still no final action to make it happen. And meanwhile, the condition of the palace, part of a UNESCO World Heritage Site, continues to rapidly decline. Asbestos is a major problem. Leaks of water, and worse, are commonplace. Mice share offices with staff. They join visitors on tours. And mice pay little attention to the access rights to bars and restaurants. And perhaps most concerning of all, fire is a constant threat. Only 24-7 fire patrols control the risk, but it can never eliminate it. There have been 66 fire incidents in Parliament since 2008, with some having the potential to cause catastrophic damage in the order of the disaster which recently befell Notre Dame. So the need to secure Parliament in the palace for future generations is urgent. And we are now making real progress. You've seen the scaffolding. I was delighted after some unbelievable tussles that make England's recent outing against New Zealand look pretty straightforward to introduce the Parliamentary Building's Restoration and Renewal Bill to Parliament. And it has now completed its stages in the Commons and is making its way through the House of Lords. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, and it'll be many years before the decant of MPs and peers means that the major work can start on the palace itself. But I'm truly delighted that at long last, we're taking steps to secure our parliament for the next generation. The wonderful recent ITV series about Queen Victoria has a scene where Lord Melbourne is talking to Prince Albert in Westminster Hall following the terrible fire that almost destroyed the palace in 1834. Lord Melbourne tells the prince that whilst being prime minister had been worthwhile, overseeing the rebuilding of the palace would be a real legacy to be proud of. So I hope that that will be the legacy of this parliament. The other challenge I want to mention this evening came from stage left and yet became a huge focus for me as leader, and that's bullying and harassment. In November 2017, the sexual harassment scandal that had engulfed Hollywood and triggered the Me Too movement inevitably arrived at Parliament's door. There were shocking stories of sexual assault, bullying and harassment. Action needed to be taken, but all too often there's a lot of heat in these situations and not much light. We had to make sure that much more than just lip service was paid to the problem, or there was the real danger that after an initial flurry of activity, the problem would be quietly swept under the rug as attitudes and behaviour returned to what was considered normal. So I was asked by the Prime Minister to chair a cross-party working group. All political parties were represented, staff of MPs, union reps and members of the Lords as well as the Commons were appointed. As you can imagine, finding agreement with such a group of diverse views was never going to be easy. So it's no surprise that there were difficulties, blocking attempts, long meetings and, yes, raised voices. But there was also the collective determination to get it right and a shared realisation that here was a real opportunity to make a difference and to change the archaic attitudes and culture in Parliament once and for all. So in July 2018, the new Independent Complaints and Grievance Scheme was agreed in the House of Commons. For the first time in Westminster, there was a scheme to which anyone working for or with Parliament could take a complaint and receive advice or have it investigated independently and confidentially. This wasn't the end, and it wasn't even the beginning of the end, but I do hope it was the end of the beginning. Culture change doesn't happen overnight, 
and I congratulate the new leader of the House for his commitment to this issue and for continuing to make progress. But as the Dame Laura Cox report highlighted at the end of last year and the Gemma White report showed only last week, there is much more that needs to be done. The Gemma White inquiry, which looked into the historic bullying and harassment of MP staff, said last week that bullying and harassment was commonplace and that it is still the case today that many members of staff feel unable to complain for fear that it will damage their career. That is unacceptable. Everyone has the right to be treated with dignity and respect and to feel confident in raising a complaint without fear of reprisal. The Gemma White report recommends firstly that although MPs must continue to be responsible for the employment of their staff, a new centralised HR system should be established for those staff and I agree with this. The question of who would have responsibility for this function needs to be considered further. It could be done via IPSA or via the House authorities themselves and so the relative merits must be considered carefully. There are real pros and cons of each and again I'm happy to answer questions on that later. Secondly, our new post-ICGS procedures include training in valuing others and many other training courses are available. Now this particular training in valuing others has only been up and running for a short time and I was one of the people who was beta testing it only about six or eight weeks ago, so it's still very early days. But I do think that all party whips should be making sure that MPs and MP staff undertake this training as soon as possible. It's really valuable stuff. Thirdly, the working group also introduced thorough induction courses, and I do believe that these should be compulsory for every new joiner coming to work in Parliament. No other major organisation would allow a new starter to begin work in such a huge and complex institution with so many challenges without any training on health and safety, cyber security, fire safety, let alone where to go with complaints or HR queries. So there is much more to be done. And I also believe that the House of Commons Commission itself should be reviewed and renewed. I have proposed three changes for consideration, and they might sound trivial, but they would lead to fundamental improvement in transparency and accountability. First of all, all backbench MPs on the Commission should be elected and not appointed by the Whips. Secondly, that all members of the House Commission, including the Clerk of the Commons, the Director General and the external members, should have a vote, which is currently not the case. Thirdly, the Commission should have at least one member of MP staff and one member of House staff appointed or elected to it. And then it's also my view that House of Commons Commission procedures should change. It should definitely be meeting more often than once a month. The minutes should be made public properly, not just the action points arising. And the role of Speaker, not to personalise it, but I do not think the role of Speaker is appropriate to chair the House of Commons Commission. A thorough review is long overdue if we are to achieve proper accountability and real transparency. So in conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, the last two years in Parliament have been extraordinary and I'm not sure many would bet on the next two being any quieter. I believe that great progress has been made in a number of areas and Parliament's role has been strengthened. There are frankly so many areas I could have covered today. We haven't even touched upon issues such as the next Queen's speech, the role of the Speaker, the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, the use of the humble address, private members' bills and the membership of delegated legislation committees. You could really get geeky and this is of course the place for it, isn't it, Hannah? Yes. <laughs> Suffice to say, there are many conventions and procedures which have been tested and reinterpreted over this period. It has been, however, a great honour to serve as the Leader of the House at such a pivotal time and I'm so grateful for the opportunity this evening to discuss some of the areas of progress and also my belief in the bright future that lies ahead for our great United Kingdom. Thank you. Thank you very much, Andrea. Um, 
so very tempting to go into your long list of geeky things, but I'll stick <laughs> to the main themes that you um, pulled out and start as you did with, with Brexit. You talked about the preference being, of course, uh, as expressed by uh, both the candidates for leadership to leave the EU with a deal. You also talked about your experience of taking legislation <coughs> and particularly Brexit-related legislation through the House as leader. Are you really telling us that you think it's possible to go back to Brussels, renegotiate, ratify a change deal, and then bring legislation through the House all before the 31st of October? So yes, it is. And the reality is that the only legislation that you need to exit the European Union has been pretty much done. So the EU Withdrawal Act that got more assent in June 2018 was key. And then the secondary legislation that came off the back of that was pretty much all done in time for March the 29th. There were a few SIs that were around tariffs and single electricity market in Ireland that were going to be done under the urgent procedure. So those didn't come forward because we extended Article 50. But it was, in effect, a wrap. So in terms of negotiating new arrangements, anything that's already in the withdrawal agreement, the EU27 have already agreed to as a complete package. So you do get into the issue of is it cherry-picking and would they agree to certain things even though it wasn't the entire package. And that is a matter of your opinion on whether the EU27 really would say no, unless it's everything, it's literally nothing. If it's nothing, the UK and the EU27 are considerably better prepared for exiting without a withdrawal agreement than they were even at the end of March. And certainly the, the issues that we faced, I mean, I, I sat on the cabinet subcommittee that was looking at all, all um, outcomes, including no deal, for two years. And the preparations, again, the superb work of the civil service has been amazing. So I don't fear no deal. It wouldn't be my preference by a long way, but I do think that it's important if you're going to successfully negotiate that you are prepared to walk away. And anyone who's a keen um, Grand Prix follower might like to know that um, Silverstone Circuit in my constituency just hosted a very successful Grand Prix. Two years ago, they invoked the break clause on the contract because of the incredible charge they were being uh, uh, required to pay for hosting it. And three days after two years of saying, nope, 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 there'll be no British Grand Prix, then that's it, you, you're just never going to have it again. Three days before the Grand Prix, which was the deadline for doing a deal, they did the deal. So actually, you know, it just demonstrates to me you have to hold your nerve, you have to be prepared to walk away, and then ultimately people do what's in all of our best interests. So I don't dispute what you say about the legislative basis for leaving already being there, as you say, in the, in the EU Withdrawal Act, but um, in order to leave with a deal, yes. even if it was the deal yep. that Theresa May tried to get through the House and, and failed on, on, on two and a half occasions, um, you would still need to pass that as a piece of legislation. Yes. And yeah. there's limited yeah. parliamentary time left. Yeah. So this aspiration to leave with a deal, as you say, would be preference. Is that realistic? So, again, Parliament can pass emergency legislation extremely quickly, as we know. With some of the Northern Ireland legislation, for example, it's been gone through both houses extremely quickly. So it is possible, yes. So the question you're asking me, actually, is, is it likely? Now, in my view, my personal view, the withdrawal agreement is not going to be um, able to be passed through Parliament, and therefore the withdrawal agreement bill will not be something that Parliament would pass. However, a bill on, for example, citizens' rights, which is very much in the interest of EU citizens as well as UK citizens living in Europe, is very much in everybody's interest. And there are other things, too, around things like the future for Gibraltar, the future for goods in circulation at the time of our departure. So there are many measures that could be brought in, either through emergency legislation or indeed through having second reading and perhaps getting through committee stage, maybe completing the stages in one house, and then in effect being given a, a temporary, not, not, not uh, extending Article 50 in any way, but an acceptance that this is now going to be legislated for and a willingness on the part of the EU to reciprocate. But those are mere speculation. I entirely accept that. But I do feel quite optimistic. And you've, you've spoken about your, your role as leader and the difficult parliamentary, parliamentary circumstances you've had to deal with, perhaps you know, an unprecedentedly difficult trying to get controversial legislation through with a minority situation. This has also been, undisputably, I think, a, uh, 
a period of great tension between Parliament and the executive. We've seen uh, humble addresses because uh, backbenchers and the opposition have felt that the government hasn't produced information that, that Parliament has wanted to see. We've seen government held uh, in contempt of Parliament. We've seen legislation passed without the support of the government. Reflecting on those difficult, these difficult times, what advice would you give to the next leader of the House or to yourself, if that was an opportunity that, that you had again, about how to rebuild, if you like, the relationship between Parliament and the executive after this very difficult period? So I don't actually entirely agree with your assessment there. So the result of a hung Parliament is that Parliament itself has the opportunity, every single individual has the chance to say, well, I'm going to make your piece of legis your, piece, your legislation fail unless you give me a new hospital, a road, or whatever it might be, or unless you do something that I want to happen. And you can have small groups of people who then become incredibly able to influence the outcome of a vote. You also have the situation where every single vote counts, so somebody who, for example, has the proverbial nativity play or graduation ceremony or a sick parent or whatever is put under extreme personal pressure to have to be there for a vote because it could make the difference between winning or losing. So you have those natural Ill inbuilt challenges in a hung parliament that just don't exist where there's a decent majority. So that's what this is all about. If there was a majority, you would not have had this complexity. So what has therefore resulted from that has been that parliament has been in a position to be able to push certain areas that because of the parliamentary arithmetic under normal circumstances would have been less likely to happen. So in my view, I mean, I sort of did business questions every Thursday, and I would say there was very strong cross-parliament collaboration in a lot of areas, and that continues to be the case in select committees. There's a lot of cross-party issues. The harassment and bullying is a perfect example of where every single political party worked together to a common goal. So I don't think that it is the, it's not a function of um, the executive being overweeningly difficult and problematic and hostile, it is a function of a hung parliament. However, having said all that, I do think that there's things that an incoming government could do, and I think one of those would be to be very much more transparent about the preparations for all forms of Brexit. It's only a few months away, and in my view, I would much have preferred that we were more um, yeah, transparent about the progress and what we thought the likely outcomes would be. Because it can then work both ways. I mean, I think businesses can then provide their input on how they think, in the event that there isn't a withdrawal agreement, what, how, how we can help ourselves to ensure that we minimise any disruption. And projecting forwards, clearly, uh, once Brexit has happened, the aspiration is uh, for, the, for the UK to strike lots of new trade deals and in, indeed other treaties with other countries. What do you think, um, how do you think Parliament needs to be engaged in that process? Well, that actually, that's a really good question, and it's something that um, Parliament itself has had some views on and hasn't really finalised its view. And so clearly, for future trading arrangements, there will need to be parliamentary consultation. That would either be through statutory instruments, which is a, definitely a parliamentary activity, but on the whole, experiences less scrutiny than primary legislation. But I think all of those things are still to be worked out. I think the challenge with, um, with free trade agreements is that you will want to have the freedom for negotiators to negotiate. You won't want to have their hands tied so that they can never get a deal done. But on the other hand, you will obviously want Parliament to have its say on areas that would be a, a red line for Parliament. Turning now uh, to, to bullying and harassment. Um, so Gemma White, last week, as you mentioned, talked about the independent complaints and grievance scheme. And she said, um, and you, you know, something that you worked really hard on you know, throughout, throughout your time as leader, um, she said that it was inadequate because the power imbalance between elected members and staff was still there and meant that it would be career suicide anyone who tried to bring a complaint against their employer and she said most of the people who'd spoken to her wouldn't have complained under the scheme um, now you've talked also about you know the importance of confidentiality in the ICGS and I think that that's I totally agree with you on that because um, 
we've seen this week in the press coverage of Gemma White and so on, a complete absence of any MP staff, current or former, on the TV talking about their experiences. And I think that tells you a lot about the fact that these people, exactly as Gemma White says, feel that it would be career suicide, whether they're still working in the House or whether they've now left, to talk about their experiences. So how do you get around the fact that staff say, until we see consequences from the scheme, until we see people who are repeatedly accused of having bullied and harassed staff uh, found uh, you know, subject to a due process and, and something happens to them, how do you uh, reconcile that with the need for, for confidentiality under the scheme? So um, I don't want to keep disagreeing with you, but I think you've just <laughs> completely misrepresented what Gemma said and how the scheme is working. So um, Gemma did actually say that, uh, that for the first time ever, the Independent Complaints and Grievance Scheme enables uh, people in Parliament, historic or current staff members, um, to be able to come forward to an independent place to bring a complaint and to have it properly investigated. And what she said is she had feedback from people saying that they were afraid that it would be career suicide to complain whilst they were still working in Parliament. That's not the same as saying that it would be career suicide, and that's a really important distinction. And I totally understand that people are afraid for all sorts of reasons, not least of which because very often when someone has complained, as in fact I never have complained, but I myself have experienced journalists camped out outside my door because of something somebody else complained about on my behalf. So, you know, literally this is a, a toxic um, piece of, uh, of um, media attention if you genuinely want to come forward with a complaint. So the confidentiality is absolutely vital and integral to the scheme. Um, and you say that until people see people coming forward and being you know, um, accused and therefore found guilty and so on, they won't have confidence in it. But actually, again, I don't think that that's right. What, what this complaints procedure is about is culture change. What Gemma White was doing was looking at historic allegations. Now, obviously, people who've had complaints want to see, um, they want to see consequences for people. They really do want to see consequences for people. But as important is to change the way people behave in the future. So you've got the one purpose of the complaints procedure is to change the culture, and the other purpose of it is to ensure that there are ramifications for people who have bullied and harassed people in the past. So it's the bullying and harassment, the sanctioned side of it, that, that will become known because anybody who has done something and been found guilty of it by an investigator or found to have actually committed whatever the complainant said they'd done, there will be consequences for that individual. Now, if it was relatively low level, then it might involve an apology or training, and that might not become public. But if it's something serious, it will go to the Standards Committee, and therefore the name of the individual who's being complained about will be out there. And, th and I think the challenge, we've had a number of different inquiries, all with diff slightly different purposes and all absolutely vital, and I in instigated them all, so you know I'm, I'm a big fan. But essentially, the, the complexity of this is that it's not been up and running for very long. And one of the things we've also had in recent weeks is, a, is the interim six-month review by Alison Stanley, an independent reviewer, of the way that the ICGS is working. And one of the big pieces of feedback from her through the scheme is that it's too slow in coming to its conclusions. The whole process is too slow. Now, I and nobody is entitled to know, so did you complain? What about? What happened? When did you hear back? I'm not allowed to know you've complained. I'm certainly not allowed to know then what happened. Only you would know that. So the problem that we have is that until there are actual sanctions and those have consequences for individuals, until then it will all be in this mix. And so I fear we just need to wait a bit longer until some of those complaints have worked their way through. Sorry, that's quite a long explanation, yeah. but so important to understand. The complaints procedure is about sanctions for wrongdoing, but it's very much about behaviour change changing Parliament so that we can become a role model for the rest of the world in the way that we do treat people with dignity and respect. And so those two things are slightly different. I don't think we actually disagree, and I, but I do think that the uh, culture change that you <coughs> want to see from the scheme will only really start to happen fully once the scheme starts to work its way through and cases start, start to be. And obviously I I'm, I'm would, would never argue that we need cases you know, to be proven where they shouldn't be proven. It's the fact that um, there are that staff say 
when we see people walking around and we know that they are multiply accused, yes. and yet there is no evidence that there's even been any process underway to investigate those, those allegations, mm, mm. That, that it is difficult for them to have confidence. Yeah, in so it's one of the key reasons for you know, being here today is to really emphasize the fact that those processes are underway. I mean, the data has been uh, uh, made transparent. There's something like 250 um, unique calls been made with about 80 complaints under active investigation. Those could be way out, by the way. I'm just re recalling from memory. So don't hold me to those numbers. But it's certainly multiple numbers of complaints that are being investigated. I have no idea whether they're serious enough to warrant, uh, and indeed whether they're against members of parliament or, or members of house staff and so on. But suffice to say, the sanctions route is very clearly set out. And so there will be sanctions as appropriate. But the other thing, just to your point about people won't um, change the culture until they see those sanctions, there is another way that we're trying to change the culture, and that's with the training. Yes. So this valuing others training that, as I say, I beta tested about six weeks ago, that in itself literally is designed to teach you about the importance of appropriate contact, of treating someone with respect, of not demanding that they sort of pick up your dry cleaning and you know, babysit your kids and stay late and don't have a holiday. So it's, it goes through in actually a very, uh, very you know, easygoing, flowing way how to value other people that you work with. And it deals with all of the more serious problems between in MPs' offices too. And the other thing I would say is that, in a sense, this has been a weakness of Parliament of years gone by. Because you know, for me, I was 25 years in business before Parliament. But for lots of MPs, they may never have managed a team of people before. So they don't have the tools. They've never had the training and they've never been offered it before. So actually, interestingly, we, I just came from a debate in the chamber now on Gemma White's report, and MPs are standing up saying, this will be fantastic to have this training. You can't just assume, because I'm an MP, that I know how to run a team, how to deal with someone who never turns up for work, because it obviously cuts both ways. How do you do an appraisal? Do you need to do an appraisal? You know, in my view, yes, obviously, but not necessarily. It's not necessarily instinctive. So I do think we actually all need to understand this is a process we're probably at the end of the beginning of that process and there's a long way to go before we can really say we've nailed it and i i think it's fair to say i've heard some really positive things about that training from those who have had the chance Good. to undertake yeah. it um obviously this is an issue which is very close to your heart and you've you've really championed it within parliament um there are allegations that have been made against um some former ministers do you feel that all your work on this would be undermined if some of those former ministers who resigned because of allegations of bullying and harassment against them came back into government next week? I, that is, it's a really difficult question. I, I just don't want to get into personalities. Um, I mean, you know, allegations that led to um, resignations as far as I'm aware, so far, none of them have been investigated under the ICGS. None no, of those have been. Yeah. So they were the kind of original trial by media, trial by accusation, no proper investigation. Now, I'm not saying that, therefore, they weren't true, but I'm just saying that what we actually want to see... they were investigated by the Civil Service and the Cabinet Office rather than under the parliamentary scheme. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I just don't want to go there. To be perfectly honest, right. I just think, you know, we've created an independent scheme that's the beauty of it. It's independent and it's confidential, which means if you, if someone, uh, you know, if someone reports something about me, I will know about it and they will know about it, but nobody else will know about it. And if I think, well, that's just completely malicious. It's just not. I just did not do that. This person has a grievance against me. I'm not going to be hung out to dry unfairly. And I think that's really important on both sides. You do want to see justice done for those people who've had to keep quiet for so long. Not necessarily for fear of disaster to their career, but it's very often that. But it can also be, because lots of people who come to work in Parliament might want to one day become MPs themselves. And so they might have extreme party loyalty, and they think, well, if I take down you know, Minister so-and-so, then that's not really going to work very well for me if I ever want to be an MP myself. So there's all kinds of reasons, including just general party loyalty, not wanting to cause trouble and so on. So the, I can't stress enough the importance of independence and confidentiality. I really do believe it's going to make a huge change, but it just needs a bit more time. Great. Final one on restoration and renewal. 
do you think we're going to get the balance right between restoration and renewal? As you said, it took a lot of fighting <laughs> and a lot of people visiting the basement of the Palace of Westminster con to convince enough MPs to vote for restoration and renewal. Do you think there's a risk that in order to bring enough people on board with the whole idea of decanting and, and spending all this money on, on, on restoring the Palace of Westminster, that the balance might be too far towards restoration and there might be not, and not enough opportunity taken to renew the palace and to take that opportunity to enable Parliament to better engage with the public and so on. So um, actually, really, the very, very difficult conversations have been had. So because the um, bill is now in the Lords, who have always been big fans of the decant and, the, and going ahead, what the bill does is it establishes this delivery authority whose job it is to get best value for taxpayers' money whilst we're having its remit of restoration and renewal. And then the sponsor body that is also set up in statute by the bill is made up of parliamentarians and external people who are professionals in that area. So the expertise is there, the delivery capability will be there, and of course Parliament will get the opportunity to sign off on the entire business case with all of the costs and the deliverables in about, I think it's in two years' time, two to three years' time, could be less than that. I'm, again, I'm slightly <laughs> hazy. Um, but So it's really important that Parliament is able to keep an eye on the purse strings but obviously MPs are very ambitious for accessibility. I mean, things like um, for disability access, for people with um, uh, sight impairment or hearing impairment, um, for the young, um, for the elderly, you know, for all, you know, all sorts of people. And of course, the beauty of the decant to Richmond House is that we will have a replica chamber, which in my view should be then something for education so that we can have every day of the week, if necessary, the youth parliament or different groups debating different subjects and really feeling a part of parliament. So I think in answer to your question, almost by default, the renewal will take place at the same time. Now, if I, you know, if I was sort of advising the next but one, but one leader of the commons, but several probably, <laughs> I'd be saying, well, really go for it. You know, try out some new things. Maybe even, dare I say, a limit to the number of physical votes. You know, we've had some votes in recent times where we've done about 11 on the trot and it's like three and a half hours and you're so losing your sense of humour by the end of it. So you could sort of do four and then at the end of that you could write your name down. That would be radical, wouldn't it? <laughs> so anyway, I'd be keen to try some new things and I'm sure that different leaders will have different ideas. Great. Thank you. Questions from the floor. Uh, I think we've got a couple of roving mics or at least one. So start here with this gentleman here, Alice. Shall I take them in a group and then you can... Sure. Hi, uh, Ms. Ledsam. Um, I'm Emilio. I work for Politico. Um, you obviously had a bit of a testy relationship with John Burko while you were leader of the House of Commons. I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a bit more about what that was like behind the scenes and also what you think about his decision to <laughs> delay his departure, both in relation to bullying allegations against him and also in relation to how, what it might mean for Brexit. A testy relationship, eh? Hey? Is I that what you think? think? There was one more question... Mrs. Letton, I just wanted to ask you about the bullying and harassment. Could you, um, could you give your name? Oh, sure. I'm Vicky Fox. I work at IPSA. Um, there have been three reports now that describe probably to mo what to most outsiders would feel like quite a shocking culture um, with a minority of MPs behaving very badly. Um, and they, all the reports have recommendations that would support a better working culture. But I wonder what you think about... Um, really it's, it just requires that minority of MPs who behave poorly behaving with courtesy and respect for others and for MP, the vast majority of other MPs calling the, on them and challenging them when they behave poorly. That seems to me the quickest, most easy solution. And I wonder what you think about why that hasn't happened so far and what would it take for MPs to change the culture? Thank you. Yes, thank you. So um, I will only say that the roles of Leader of the Commons and Speaker of the Commons are pretty much intertwined and uh, the role of Speaker of the Commons is an incredibly powerful role and therefore it's always been very important to me to show respect to the holder of that job. 
And I think probably, now that I'm no longer leader of the Commons, <laughs> Mark would probably kill me if I said anything more <laughs> than that, basically, and particularly to politicos. But anyway, I think, um, I think you know, the, what I would say is that the culture in an organisation is very often set by what happens at the top. And it's very important that people take those responsibilities incredibly seriously. Um, on the point about MPs calling it out, I mean, I have to say, without naming any names, some of the anecdotes I've heard, I have been truly gobsmacked when I've heard who the person is that has been accused of whatever it is they've been accused of, because I have never seen that. I have not seen that individual behave in that way. And so therefore, that's one reason why MPs don't call it out, is because people behave differently with different people. I think a second reason is actually um, it's very difficult for people to actually intervene. I mean, it is just an uncomfortable situation. And one of the things I really like about the Valuing Others training is it does demonstrate very graphically some ways of calling it out without yourself feeling desperately uncomfortable or you know, being accused of taking sides or whatever. So I think that's quite helpful. Training will help. Um, but also, I think, you know, where somebody is a bully, where they're treating their staff terribly, it's not clear to me that other MPs calling it out is enough. And I do agree with those who say that um, we really do need to see some serious consequences for that minority. And you're absolutely right, it is a real minority. I mean, show me 650 people in any walk of life, and I'll show you some who don't behave very well. The reality is that most MPs are extremely good employers and courteous and so on. But it is a minority, and they do need to experience serious consequences. And I do believe that they will under this complaints procedure. Okay, more questions? Uh, Jill here at the front. Uh, hi, I'm Jill Rutter, and I work here. <coughs> and I want to take us back to Brexit, but a slightly different sort of angle on Brexit. Um, I think the Prime Minister, when she was uh, talking to Laura Klinsberg last week, said the thing she got wrong was misunderstanding how Parliament would react to her deal. And obviously you and the Chief Whip were part of the people advising the Prime Minister how Parliament would react to the deal. I wondered if you had any comments on, on actually the sort of surprise, the misestimation of the scale of the defeat, uh, the pulling of the first meaningful vote, but also advice either to yourself, if you're restored as leader of the House, or to your successor about how the business managers can better advise a new prime minister who's likely to face difficulties as well, getting whatever Brexit or indeed no deal uh, accepted by Parliament uh, in the autumn. Alex, there's a lady over there. Hi, my name's Freya and I'm a civil servant. Um, I was wondering if you could have a ministerial position in any department, which one would you pick? And are there any that you think, oh goodness, no? <laughs> Gosh. Which one of those do you want to take first? Well, <laughs> it's a bit of a... Okay, so um, your, your question, Joy, is, is, a, is a really interesting one, actually. I mean, obviously, technically, it is the job of the WIPs department to advise on the numbers. And um, I would say, that I wasn't surprised at all that we didn't win those votes. I never thought we would and was always clear that that was my view. So I can't really answer that question. I, I'm, I'm, other than say I was slightly surprised that the Prime Minister was surprised. But at the same time, going back to what I said to Hannah, I do think that um, it would be easier to win Parliament over by reaching out. And I think in this parliament, the thing I've learnt is that there are decent people on all sides of the house, there really are. And if you, you know, show a bit of leg, that's a terrible phrase. Um, if you kind of reach out a bit and share information and, you know, work with them a bit more, then actually I think you can get things done. So that would be my advice to the next prime minister, a bit more transparency. Um, in terms of what job, uh, the, I mean, I, having been 25 years in finance, that would be my ideal job. There isn't really a job I would completely refuse to do, but um, it would be, I suppose, you know, there are certain jobs that would be more tricky in my view, and I don't really want, you know, this is, unless you've got a, you know, 
inside track to the next Prime Minister and put in a good word for me. I, I think I, I would love to be back in government. It's been fantastic to be in government. And um, it definitely, having spent four years on the backbenches and now five years in government, you know, both have their strengths and weaknesses. But being in government, although your, your ability to influence is, in a sense, narrower, you can really change things. Whereas when you're on the backbenches, you can be a fantastic campaigner. Um, but it's harder to really change things. You can sort of graze a lot more, but you can't really fundamentally change things. So yes, being in government is going to be as far as I would go. And if you weren't back in government, is there a select committee you'd like to chair? I haven't got that far yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, there's a gentleman just yeah. on the same. Um, the one, one of the main functions of, of the Commons and indeed the Lords is obviously to be a legislature. Uh, and yet, of course, it is, there is always the problem of lack of parliamentary time. When, it, when any legislation is going through or being suggested or being I, thought about, oh, well, there isn't parliamentary time. And that's partly because there is this bottleneck of parliament only has whatever number of days it is per year, and everything has to go through parliament, uh, and everything has to go through the whole procedure. Um, there is, a, of course, a fast track for law commission bills and so forth, but that's not often used. Is there any way one could, in some way, get, because an inefficient legislation, an inefficient um, statute book, is massively expensive. To rely on litigation to sort things out is very inefficient. Uh, is there any way you can see that parliamentary procedure could, in some way, allow for more legislation to go through uh, by some form of some some form of committee system, fast track system, uh, possibly particularly where it's been the subject of pub, pu uh, public consultation, to, so that one can unblock this this bottleneck. Because at the moment, it, it is it is all, it always very difficult to get, particularly with sort of what one might call boring technical legislation, which has absolutely no votes in it, but is actually quite important to make the system work better and and. It's much more fun in Parliament to talk about Iraq or to talk about uh, bullying and all sorts of other exciting things, but boring legislation to sort out social security payments or whatever uh, is, is always going to be unexciting. Is, is there any way around that problem? Sorry, could you give your name? Oh, sorry, Charles Miners, and, and I'm a, a civil servant and law commissioner. Great, thank you. And there's a lady here who's got a question. My name is Stella and I'm a civil servant. My question to you is what advice would you give for people starting their career in the government? Well, I just don't think that there's any boring legislation. <laughs> you know, surely in this room we love legislation. Um, so I'm slightly horrified and, and uh, I can't quite believe that we could consider fast-tracking legislation. I mean, the scrutiny is absolutely vital. I don't quite know how to answer that because in many ways, you know, depending who you talk to, some people would say, well, we legislate far too much. We should have the US system where it's nigh on impossible to pass a bill and we should just stop tinkering at the edges. Um, and then, of course, others say, well, this is completely rubbish. You need to fix it. Um, I do think that... Um, the new process for statutory instruments that we introduced that I mentioned in my speech. I do think that's had a profoundly good effect because quite often the kind of irritations where th something's been badly implemented is actually secondary legislation, not primary. So I do think that we'll start to see you know, better legislation overall as a result of the changes to that process. In terms of fast track, I mean, one of the ways that the government does that where something is uncontroversial or where it has real cross-party support is, of course, through private members' bills. And very often, you'll have, um, you know, a member of parliament could be on any bench, might take a government handout bill on the grounds that it's something that the House really wants to see through. And that can be a form of fast-tracking. But I'm not sure I could ever really support, I'm just trying to think, I mean, law commission bills, as you rightly say, is another way where it's something that's particularly technical. But the example you gave of sorting out social security <laughs> without any scrutiny, oh my goodness. You know, I can't quite see that that would uh, find favor with anyone else. So, you know, I think, you know, there's pros and cons, but I think, you know, the system that we have is as good as it gets, really. And to the point about 
Career advice to someone coming new into government. Actually, yes, I would say um, I, I do have a piece of advice, in fact. And it is that, um, you know, as, as I've said earlier, you know, often MPs haven't managed a team. They may never have worked in business. And so when you're actually, you know, if you're a brain surgeon and you're now suddenly the Minister for Transport, it's just like, what? What? You know, wh wh what's happening here? And, and that's the odd thing about politics is your civil servants are there to kind of put to you the different options and you're there to make the decisions when faced with, you know, several different alternatives. And so I would say it's really important for anyone coming in as a minister for the first time to take the time to understand the scope of your brief, so to actually call together each of the different policy teams. I mean, there will be somewhere in your department a, a kind of a think bubbles of every single policy area that sits within your brief, and then those that sort of that sort of go across your brief and somebody else's, and any interministerial work that goes on and so on. And then the civil service will always give you, as I'm sure you know if you work for the civil service, a really good brief on your particular portfolio. And so I would say take the time to really understand that. Secondly, is to take the time to get to know your private office, to know who does what properly, and what, what sort of things they can and are willing to do for you by way of putting your policies. And then thirdly, you need to think about what your own priorities are. So if you go into a department, when I became energy minister, I was like, wow, you know, I, I know a lot about the city and I know a lot about the economy and energy I do not know much about. So taking the time to really learn about it and then to form a view on what your own priorities are, I think is really important. And all too often when you go into government, you're just straight in, you hit the ground running and there's never the chance to sit back and properly think about it. So particularly since it's all going to be next week, there is the summer recess. So that, that would be my piece of advice. We're pleased to hear that the Institute is publishing a paper next week with just advice to new people coming Secretary of State, and it's very congruent with what you've just said. Yeah. So. Well, well, of course, for a Secretary of State, I would add to that, get to know your ministerial team. Indeed. You know, have a weekly meeting. Don't just kind of treat it as if, well, I'm doing this and you're doing this and we don't talk to each other. You know, I do think communication, human interaction is so important. And that is definitely yeah. feedback from, from ministers. There's a gentleman here, and then I'll take one more question. Thank you very much. It's Masato Kimura, Japanese journalist. My question is about democracy. Uh, 160 uh, Tory members, uh, not average Britain, I think. So they have no mortgage, and they, I guess they don't need to work uh, full time. And uh, so uh, if uh, next prime minister will go to uh, no deal Brexit, I think you should go to general election because you have to listen to the voice of uh, the United Kingdom. And how do you think? Hmm. And one more, Alice, just, just here. I'm Rishi Wilson, I run a trade association. Um, my question to you is, uh, what would you say are the key advantages of Brexit? Okay, well, in terms of democracy, I mean, we had a referendum. It was the biggest democratic exercise ever. It was very clearly a decision to leave the EU. And people say, well, people didn't know what they were voting for, but the government put out a booklet telling people exactly what leaving the EU would mean. It went to every household. And then the government announced that there would be half a million job losses, that we'd be cutting <coughs> the NHS and pensions, all sorts of things. So. It simply isn't true to say that people didn't know what they were voting for. And it simply isn't democratic to say that because one person doesn't like the outcome, that therefore we should start again, that we should, and we've had a general election by the way as well, and so we ended up with a government, albeit with a hung parliament, but we have had a general election with a government and indeed both parties fully committed to leaving the European Union. So even that isn't really an answer. So I'm afraid I just don't agree that we need any other democratic engagement, and I also think that Brenda from Bristol would go spare. You know, she didn't like the last one, and she won't like it the next one. So I, I think we're done. I think we now need to leave the European Union and get on with it, which takes me nicely on to what are the key advantages of Brexit. Where do I start? I mean, the UK is the world's fifth or sixth biggest economy. We have three of the world's top ten universities. We're a core part of a commonwealth of two and a half billion citizens, most of whose economies are growing faster than any economy in the EU. We've got the world's biggest financial services sector. The rest of the world want to trade with us in financial services, and that is the whole raft of financial services. International rankings put our capital city as the best on earth. 
We're number one in the world for soft power, so our ability, once we leave European institutions, to be a force for good in the world, on, on the rights of women, on education for girls, in terms of climate change, in terms of spending overseas development aid to protect endangered species, to trade with the rest of the world. I mean, where do you stop? The advantages are absolutely enormous. And we're not leaving Europe, we're leaving the EU institutions finding our own way as a nation of uh, four nations who working together can be a real force for good in the world for ourselves and for people overseas. There are so many opportunities, just too many to, to, to put into one sentence. And on that very optimistic note, thank you. Yes. Um, I'd like to thank everyone for those wide-ranging questions and ask you to join me in thanking Andrea for answering them. Thank you.